Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. We're going to do a show today about uh, the people known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I'll tell you one thing that we're not going to do, and we're not entirely comfortable with it, but we're going to do it without anybody who's actually an active participating Jehovah's Witness. And the reason that that's happening is uh, it's almost impossible to accomplish uh, doing that. Um, But we are going to um, look at a lot of things about them that you probably don't know, particularly ways in which their beliefs about medicine have, in fact, influenced the way that medicine is practiced and, in fact, created beneficial changes for lots of uh, lots of other people who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, And we're also going to talk about ways in which legal cases that they've pursued have also created a lot of benefits for people who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. But first, we're also going to try to explain as much as we can to you about a very misunderstood religious movement. You probably know a few things about Jehovah's Witnesses. The thing you're most likely to know is that they frequently come to your door. Um, You might also know that they don't do the Pledge of Allegiance, that they don't uh, uh, do blood transfusions, they don't celebrate birthdays, they don't celebrate Christmas, Um, they're not wild about the cross. Uh, they reject, it, uh, reject that as a religious symbol. Um, you may know a few other things or think you know a few other things. Uh, so uh, here are some people who are going to try to help you understand. Uh, Mark Silk is here with us. He's uh, been here with us many times. He's the director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life and a professor of religion at Trinity College in Hartford. Uh, with us also is uh, Jonathan DeHoyos. John is a landscape designer, a Connecticut resident, and a former member of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I should say that there are various ways in which you can be a former member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and sometimes people who leave, uh, leave with a lot of uh, hostility. Uh, John, I think it's fair to say you're not one of those people. No, no, I, I definitely have a lot of uh, love and respect and affection for a lot of the uh, men and women that, that I associated with um, in the congregation in the past, uh, people that I grew up with, and I, I'm, I'm going to walk a razor's edge to, today in trying to you know, be as, as fair as I possibly can while trying to explain why, why I, I left the religion. A little bit later also, we'll, we'll help you, try to help you walk that razor's edge. A little bit later, you'll hear from Mark Oppenheimer, also a regular guest on this show. He and I talked yesterday uh, about kind of the value of answering your door when somebody rings it and wants to talk to you about uh, something, particularly when those people are Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, and uh, also joining us a little bit later is uh, Dr. Arya Shander. Uh, he's a chief of anesthesiology, the specialist uh, in the so-called bloodless surgical procedures uh, at Englewood Hospital in New Jersey. It's one of the places where... Uh, in fact, in order to accommodate the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses, new surgical techniques were uh, developed only to have it turn out that those techniques have a much more widespread application. Uh, so anyway, we'll be telling you all about all that as we go along. But we need to, I think, sort of start out with some kind of uh, thumbnail understanding of it. And Mark, maybe the first thing to, to do is to talk about where did this movement come from? How did the Jehovah's Witnesses begin? Well, uh, they emerge. Uh, nice to be here, Colin. Yes. <laughs> uh, nice as always, um, uh, there's a guy named Charles Taze Russell, uh, who was, uh, you know, a, a kind of com- comes out of the, um, you know, main uh, evangelical Protestant tradition that kind of dominated American society in the 18th century. In the 1870s, he establishes uh, something called the Watchtower. 
uh, Bible and Tract Society, which which really uh, uses the names of the famous uh, uh, American Bible Society and American Tract Society, which were all about publishing lots of um, materials, Bibles and tracts, uh, which taught had you know religious teachings, uh, and so um, this was an org- a group that that called themselves Bible scholars, and they were reading the Bible as many American Protestants in the nineteenth century did. And uh, and when you start reading the Bible, you begin uh, for yourself um, and selves. Uh, you can come up with an interesting collection of beliefs um, based on which passages, which uh, which parts of the Bible you decide uh, to lift up, and which ones uh, you may pay less attention to. And so, uh, so the tradition really uh, emerges from the 1870s uh, and and becomes. You know, an interesting part uh, of the American religious scene. It is very much uh, a tradition in the tradition of of American apocalypticism, believing uh, that the end times are near, uh, and that's something that's going on in a wide spectrum of American Protestant uh, groups. Um, and um, and then I think some of the distinctive aspects of of Jehovah's uh, Witness sort of behavior, including um, you know, tightness of organization and so on, come uh, after the death of of Russell, when uh, the leader of the of the organization uh, becomes his his uh, his lawyer, actually, um, uh, whose name was uh, Judge Rutherford, uh, who takes over and 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 becomes a, an important you know the important figure uh, for some decades. I don't know if you want me to keep going here, but but uh, but I think the the overall um, sort of trajectory uh, of of the movement of the and and one of the ways to think about it, I think sociologists do is you know is this a denomination? Is this a church? Is this a separate religious tradition? One of the one of the um, I think a useful term for describing uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses is an established sect. Um, that is, they're not a denomination in the sense of one among many who consider themselves part of some fully larger family. I, I, I don't know, John, if you would go along with this, but you should disagree uh, um, when you can. <laughs> but, <laughs> I will. But I think the idea that um, that this is a group which has kept itself apart, in some ways hostile to the larger society, has kept it from becoming a sort of, you know, quote unquote, normal. Denomination yeah. uh, or mainstream. On the other hand, um, you know they are established. They're big. Uh, there are millions of, of of Jehovah's Witnesses in the world, and they have a well-established uh, set of beliefs, of practices, of uh, an organization. It's they're rather, um, uh, you know, they don't like to go public except when they want to go public uh, in uh, proselytizing, and that's a critical part. Uh, and I'm sure John will talk about that. The the and, whole and we should, I think we should emphasize also that although yeah we're going to talk a little bit uh, about why there isn't a Jehovah's Witness an active Jehovah's Witness on this show because I think it's germane to what you're talking about right now. But it's not as though they're a completely cloistered kind of movement. Serena Williams, for example, I think certainly brought up a Jehovah's Witness, and I think she may still be a practicing Jehovah's Witness. Obviously, Prince a lot of publicity around the fact that uh, at the time of his death he'd been a Jehovah's Witness for more than a decade. I, I think uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower was born a Jehovah's Witness brought up a Jehovah's Witness. I don't think he, he he didn't stay in that movement. But so it's not as though 
uh, John, you're all living on a bucolic uh, agrarian compound no. somewhere. No, of course not. Um, you know, just a uh, um, qu- quick little interesting fact that, um, it, of course, Charles says Russell was the, was the uh, founder of the Watchtower Bible and Track Society. Um, and interestingly enough, he had an, an associate at the time. Um, I believe his last name was Barber. I forget his first name. But um, at a certain point, they had a, a philosophical difference. Uh, I believe it was over the ransom sacrifice or something like that. And Barber uh, broke off and formed Seventh-day Adventist. Mm. So it's, it's funny to you know that Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists are essentially cousins. But to, um, to Mark's point about how, um, you know, I think you used the, the term hostile. They were they were definitely aggressive in the early years. I mean, they were you know when when they some a householder would want to uh, uh, close the door, they'd put their foot in the door and say, mm-hmm. "No, I'm not finished talking." Mm-hmm. So, and it's kind of looked back with a bit of a, a, a cringe and and, nost- of, and a twinge of uh, of nostalgia that yeah they were they were they were rough in back in the day, but no, we don't do that anymore. We're a little bit more. Uh, politically correct when it comes to our preaching and ministry and, and, and only looking for people that really want to listen. Yeah, but I think I think Mark's point was a little bit more, and maybe you can speak to this, mm-hmm. that that um, there are some religious movements that can coexist pretty easily with right. other religious movements and say, well, you know, we believe some things in common and right. you know, we're probably more on the same page than not on the same page, blah, 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 blah. And I, my sense for the Jehovah's Witnesses is they really do feel as though they've got it right and everything correct. else is implicitly kind of wrong. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Witnesses are definitely... Um, um, they are not interested in having philosophical discussions. Um, they are not interested in interfaith um, anything. Um, they believe that they only have the truth, and um, and they and they stick to that that uh, conviction. Um, so when you um, when you try to engage a, a witness at the, that has come to your door and try to explain, you know, and have an interesting dialogue. They'll probably move along and uh, and just say no. We're you know we're just really looking for people who are interested in learning what we have to say. Yeah, yeah it's worth it's yeah. worth uh, noting in the, in certainly in the early days, um, the particular animus of the witnesses was against uh, Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. uh, and and a sense that that uh, that the entire religious world had somehow been turned wrong uh, by Catholics, and and that you know will turn out to be. Uh, important in 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 the legal discussion since it takes place in a in a catholic uh, community in new haven um, I also want to just quickly say, because I already know I'm going to get some emails uh, about the Seventh-day Adventists. I think it, maybe the uh, easy, because not everybody's going to agree with the way you true, just yeah. set that one up. So uh, one thing I will say, and Mark, I think would confirm it, is the latter half of the 19th century was this time of incredible foment and change and and, and origination uh, of religious movements, movements in America. So you do. You get the uh, Mormons. You get uh, Seventh-day Adventists, Christian scientists, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Millerites, Pentecostals. I'm probably skipping a few. And, and they kind of fall roughly in, you know, about a 50, 60-year period in there. Uh, just a lot of people uh, doing uh, things that are a little bit different, that represent breaks from other traditions. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I would push it back before the Civil War, you, yeah. where you get in what's called the Second Great Awakening, um, this efflorescence of American uh, religious forms. Um, the Mormons come out of that and— uh, uh, and and the Millerites who become uh, part of the Adventist past, uh, um, expecting the end times in the 1840s, and then turn themselves into something 
more recognizably a denomination than the Jehovah's Witnesses have ever been. But but it's perfectly true, and uh, uh, it makes it makes America as interesting and a religious place as it is. Um, you know, John, uh, uh, probably worth talking about a little bit about just what it's like to to grow up in, in this. Uh, religious movement. Um, I mean, there are a lot of these very sort of obvious worldly differences uh, that I mentioned at the beginning: birthdays, Christmas, mm-hmm. pledging the alleg- pledging allegiance, and stuff like that. Uh, is that when when you were a younger person and still in the faith, and you tried to explain to somebody who didn't know very much about Jehovah's Witnesses um, who you were or what that was or what it meant to be a Jehovah's Witness? What what did you tell them? Well. It was more of a conversation of people coming up to me and saying and trying to tell me what I already believed. Okay. Um, yeah. So you know, the first uh, one of the most common things was like, "Oh, you, you guys aren't Christians," mm-hmm. and so I'd have to I'd be like, "No, that's that's not the case." You know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are Christians; they do believe in Christ, that He was the Messiah, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then you know, it, it would just continue just to be a barrage of, "Well, if if that's the case, well, what about this?" Mm-hmm. Well, I have to explain this. So it was it. it you know, if for the most part, it was just mostly a trying to dispel um, misrepresentation and, and non facts that you know people would use as an objection. So usually, the if I had a conversation like that, it would just be you know basically sparring with them to say, well, no, that's not the case. This is this is the fact. How about the lived reality of, of mm-hmm. it for you, though? I mean, for example, I, I think a lot of people from the outside looking in would go, oh, that must be really hard. You don't get Christmas. You don't get birthdays. You don't get, you know. When you're raised, it's 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 just how you're raised. Mm-hmm. Just as much as, as uh, you know, somebody of any other religion that has a particular um, uh, um, ways of doing things is foreign to somebody else. Um, when you're raised in it, it, it's not really a big deal. I mean, uh, no, we didn't have uh, we didn't have Christmas and we didn't have birthdays, but my parents did give me gifts. It wasn't like they were anti gift giving, mm-hmm. um, but they you know, but they tried to explain as I was growing up, you know, how um, or why we did certain things, and and as best you can to a six year old. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when they explained the birthday thing, how did mm-hmm. they explain it to you? It's about uh, giving uh, honor to a person um, over honor to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also the aspect of uh, having to do with uh, astrology um, and, um, uh, and, and the zodiac and so forth and your birthday being significant and so forth. Um, so because, that, uh, because of that aspect of birthdays, it was considered not a, a good thing for a good Christian to, to participate in. Um, I want to talk a little bit in, uh, towards in, uh, towards the final segment too. I want to come back to uh, some of your uh, experiences growing up, and particularly this um, uh, experience of what's called the farm. Uh, I want to hear about that. <laughs> um, but uh, I also want to talk a little bit because I, I, it's unusual for us, and we we were stressed about this to be doing a show without somebody who's right. not actively a Jehovah's Witness. So, Mark, I'm going to start with you, and then move move over to John. So, so most religions. And I've been a former religious uh, religion editor, like uh, Mark, uh, somebody who's really covered religions. And so most religions, you know, they have press operations, pretty often pretty large press operations. Uh, and, um, and it's not that the Jehovah's Witnesses don't, but it's sort of basically one guy that usually says no. Uh, and obviously they're in their news a lot these days because of prints and because they're selling a huge amount of real estate in Brooklyn right now, probably ultimately at least a billion dollars worth of real estate state as they kind of relocate uh, to somewhere else. So there's th- questions that they get asked a lot. But in general, they are surprisingly not interested in having conversations like the one we're having right now. Yeah, I think that's true. And and you can certainly look and, and see, 
you know, what one might say were comparable kinds of groups that have been outgroups, but nonetheless will talk to you like uh, the Scientologists. I mean, you can call, you know, they, they keep people who, who will talk to you, will try to bend your ear, will come on, on shows. Uh, I even, you know, managed to do a story about, you know, ordinary Scientologists mm-hmm. <laughs> once upon a time. But, um, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's quite distinctive, particularly because, because the witnesses have been prepared to go into court to go, you know, to, to really stand up on their own behalf in the public square, but then they won't come and talk to you <laughs> and uh, on your own, you know, on your turf. Well, they, they'll, uh, they'll come and talk to you at your house, but, but they right. don't want to do this. And so, John, one of the things that we discovered was that, um, you know, okay, so we were officially turned down by uh, the headquarters in, in Brooklyn. Um, and then, you know, we started trying some other stuff, and uh, Josh, our producer, went to Kingdom Hall for services and kind of tried to meet some people. And then we did a little social media stuff. And some people kind of approached us a little bit and then ultimately said no. Then they would just either disappear without warning mm-hmm. after expre- having expressed a little bit of interest. And, and as I was saying to you before we went on the air, I'm kind of impressed by that that level of discipline. I don't mean that in a right. negative way at all, but right. usually you can find somebody who, who didn't get the memo, who doesn't right. know what the rule is, and they'll start talking to you. But this is there's a lot of, as you said, unity about this. There is. There is a strong unity of message, unity of thought within the organization, and um, and it, you know, when I was speaking with Josh uh, the other day in preparation for the show. Um, I told him, I said, it does not surprise me at all that you were not able to find anybody uh, that'd be willing to do the show. Um, you know, I, and, and the way I, I, I phrased it with, with Josh was that, um, you know, over the years, especially, you know, going back to the early years, um, you know, witnesses were, were really persecuted in this, in this country itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, run out of town on a rail, tar and feathered. Um, and so that, I don't want to say, you know, the persecution complex, but just, you know, they, they have an aversion to to um, a situation where um, they're – and I don't say this in a negative sense – that they're not in control, that they can't control the, 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 the message um, because, like I said before, they're not interested in having arguments. They're mm-hmm. not having uh, – they're not interested in having debates. Um, so, and that a situation like this in a studio where you're having just a conversation as friendly and as neutral as you want it to be, they would just prefer to, you know, like you say, have it on their own turf where you're, they're approaching people. Um, and I, and I don't say that in a negative way at mm-hmm. all. Um, you know, uh, he, what he says, Mark, makes me think, uh, uh, about a big difference, I think, between uh, something that makes Jehovah's Witnesses pretty much unique, I think, is if you could think about some of the other nascent religious movements that we talked about, um, most of them have gone through periods of persecution. Uh, certainly the Mormons went through tons of pers- yeah. persecution. Joseph Smith was actually lynched or killed in, in, in Carthage, Illinois. Uh, and and um, even the Quakers, obviously, knocked around a lot uh, for their troubles earlier in American history. Um, but ultimately, this has mostly been a story of assimilation uh, and assimilation to a point where they can function very well within society. You certainly, you know, I mean, in, in 18... 60, it would have been hard for anybody to believe in America that there could be people named Romney who are Mormons who could run for president. I mean, two of them could actually run for president. Uh, I think Chris Shays grew up a Christian scientist. I don't think anybody even knows that or cares about that. One of the things about the Jehovah's Witnesses that makes them a little bit different is because they have some very 
strong restrictions on what amount to be temporal behaviors, whether it's uh, serving in the military, although that's not unique for them, or the Pledge of Allegiance, or some of the things that we're going to talk about in the second segment. It, it, it in some ways makes it probably a little bit harder for that process, that normal process to happen. I think that's right. I mean, really, if you think about religious, comparable religious groups in the world, and I don't, you know, claim a huge amount of knowledge about that, but you think of of sort of um, Muslim sects that that have lived in, um, you know, now being destroyed in Syria and, and whatnot, but who sort of kept to themselves, lived in particular places or spread out over particular areas with distinctive beliefs. Um, there still are Samaritans. There are various people, you know, who who manage through some combination of of message discipline and in marriage, you know, in sort of, sort of uh, endogamous uh, practices and so on, uh, to just keep their thing together. Uh, it's pretty rare in America, except for people like the Amish or or certain Mennonite groups who who live in on farms and or you know who who basically establish that kind of community the jehovah's witnesses don't really do that i mean that is so far as i know they don't live in in the same immediate locale although yeah. although i think it's interesting that and, and you can explain better john than i but but my understanding is that the, that the kingdom halls get set up when you get a congregation of a certain size uh, and then you have to split one off, and so these are these are more or less like parishes in the, right, in the yeah. sense that that they're geographically distributed, and yes. so you get um, you get actually uh, geographically contiguous groups of, yeah. of of witnesses in often urban and suburban areas. Yeah, and and rural as well. I mean, obviously the rural congregations are you know thirty to sixty people, and mm-hmm. then the inner city uh, congregations can be. You know, 150 to 200 people. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of um, the ways that we are most likely to encounter Jehovah's Witnesses, we did talk to Mark Oppenheimer yesterday, as I said. Um, He's got an interesting take on the tradition of door-to-door proselytizing. Uh, Mark has been on this show many times, writer of the Beliefs column for The New York Times, editor-at-large for Tablet which is a web magazine about Judaism. Uh, And uh, he actually wrote a piece about proselytizing for a magazine that we really like, an online magazine called either Eon or Aeon. Uh, We've never known how to pronounce it. Anyway, here's Mark yesterday. You've written an interesting piece about this whole notion of, I mean, look, the the inflection point, the place where everybody kind of gets to know Jehovah's Witnesses, what little they know about Jehovah's Witnesses, does come with that ringing of the doorbell. And so you you wrote a reflection about how you feel about that, and and you don't feel about it as so many other people do, that it's an unwanted intrusion, uh, that it represents maybe kind of the worst moment of their day. Look, I'm not going to say that I'm not sometimes, you know, kicking back with my mochaccino and a crossword puzzle, and then the doorbell rings, and I, if I see it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, or in some cases, the Mormons, uh, that I don't say, oh gosh, I don't, you know, I really want to continue struggling with the puzzle. I do, I'm human. That said, I see another side, which is, these are people who, in American civil society, think that it's okay to break through the wall and engage with their neighbors and, and ring doorbells. It used to be okay to knock on doors in America. Salespeople did it. Neighbors did it. I mean, the way that my grandparents socialized was after dinner on one night, they'd you know, walk down the street and see who was home and visit with people and have a piece of cake, and you didn't always have to call in advance. And today, people are so freaked out. Like, if, they don't, if, if they're not expecting someone and the doorbell rings, they think it's, it's like either the Grim Reaper or, I don't know, they think they're going to end up a Scientologist. And I just think 
there's another side, which is, you know, connecting with people by coming to their where they live is actually a virtuous thing. I think maybe one of the things that did change, I mean, we know that proselytizing has almost always been a somewhat risky business. And you go back and read Acts of the Apostles and you can see that it's a risky business. But it's a risky business back in those days and for a long time because of matters of faith. And I think it's less and less important what the matters of faith are that are waiting on the other side of the door from people. It's more this kind of building up the house as a, as a suburban or semi-urban stronghold uh, against which all incursions from the world are, are to be repelled. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think you put your finger on something, which is that when people were living in apartment towers, they were used to those kinds of intrusions. And gosh, when people were living 10 miles from each other on farms, they probably welcomed any other human voice <laughs> or sight. You know, it was good to know that other people could find you. And I do think there's something about suburbia where you feel like when you go home and mix your gin and tonic and put on your TV, the world is closed to you. And I don't think that's been good for America. I think there's all sorts of indices that suggest that that kind of isolation or presumptive solitude it actually has real downsides. One thing that we, we know, and I'm older than you are, so I know it even better, was there was a time when, when a lot of people might come and ring your doorbell. I am old enough to remember the people selling encyclopedias. In fact, we're, we're working on a show about that, too. So that was a fairly common thing, and it was kind of understood that there were these people out there on the roads, walking the roads, these, these Willie Lomans who'd ring your, your doorbell, and, and yeah, then people uh, representing all kinds of different causes. And there's been a culling, a thinning out of that herd. And then beyond that, I think there's probably quite a bit of of micro-targeting that goes on, and an awareness also that uh, it's easier to reach people digitally, it's easier easier to figure out exactly who it is you want to reach by uh, using various quantitative methods, and, and uh, there's no particular reason to walk down that particular street if this particular environmental cause is the thing that you're working for. And in a sense, the Jehovah's Witnesses are one of the last remnants of democracy in the sense that they'll walk, as far as I can tell, they'll walk anywhere. Yeah, I mean, our house, I assume that they know that, you know, a mezuzah on our door means that we're a Jewish family, and we have one, and it doesn't stop them. Now, you could say, oh, that's an extraordinary lack of respect. You know, here they see that you're obviously of another faith, and yet they bother you anyway. And I think, well, I would choose to say that they're trying to talk to me even though, um, or maybe because I'm of another faith. And they think, I mean, look, obviously they're trying to save my soul, and they think that's something they need saving, and I disagree. But that said... Isn't this also a sort of gesture against the balkanization of America, where right-wingers only talk to right-wingers and Democrats only talk to Democrats? I mean, it, it, all of which we all think, I think, is a pretty terrible thing. And here these people are, and by the way, uh, for people on the left who think that the Jehovah's Witnesses couldn't have anything in common with them, you know, you might talk to them about their pacifism, for example, or their, their rejection of patriotism, I mean, or saluting the flag or all those things. I mean, for people who are somewhat skeptical of the structures and symbols of power and imperialism, the Jehovah's Witnesses are really substantial allies who really, really do walk the walk. So there's definitely something to learn from them. Uh, Mark Oppenheimer, thanks very much for talking to us today. Okay, my pleasure. So let's get a quick response from you, John. I, I assume uh, you've rung a few doorbells uh, before you— Just a couple, yeah. yeah. So, so I don't know. How does it look from, from that side of the door? Um, it can be very scary, but um, especially for someone who you know became a witness later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're raised as a witness, it is second nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I and even today, I can I can very easily you know uh, uh, get on the phone or or talk to a complete stranger and just instantly be able to start a conversation with them about about one thing or the other. 
Um, so it, it's given me that, that comfort level uh, when it comes to um, speaking uh, to, to somebody you don't know. Um, and, and yes, I, I have <laughs> knocked on, on a person's door who was Jewish mm-hmm. or was a Buddhist or, or particular, you know, whatever religion and not necessarily a Christian. And, um, and it, can, it can be a little intimidating because you're trying to find common ground with them. Um, and, um, and so it, it, takes a, it took a little bit more uh, practice in that, in that regard to at least get that conversation going. But, you know, many times it was just a, like, ah, no, I'm not interested. And, and then we would just walk away. Um, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to tell you a little bit more about um, changes in medicine uh, that happen because there are Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. And Mark's going to tell us a little bit more about the legal history of the Jehovah's Witnesses. What do you know about the Jehovah's Witnesses? I know they're very nice people who come to my door every now and then. I like to read the flyers they give out, but that's about it. One of the last ones they gave out was how to keep your pets safe over the summer and like what foods not to give them. Um, But then the last page was about God and pets having feelings and that sort of thing, souls, whatnot. The only thing I think I know is that they celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday. They gave me a pamphlet and I looked at some of their feelings and opinions, and LGBT rights is very important to me. They did not have a very keen view on it. I know that they don't believe in putting one day above another, that every day is a gift, and that's why they don't celebrate holidays. All right. Well, uh, first of all, let me remind you who's here right now. Uh, Mark Silk, uh, who's the director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College, uh, and Jonathan DeHoyos, a landscape designer, Connecticut resident, and former member of the Jehovah's Witnesses. We're going to add one more voice to the conversation pretty soon. But, John, uh, how did the people in the street do? I'm probably... Uh, yeah, a little, little misinformation there. Uh, yeah, the Witnesses don't, don't celebrate the Sabbath, so... Um, and, uh, yeah, but otherwise everything was... Besides that, it was fine. <laughs> you know, we uh, during the break, we were just talking really quickly, and um, uh, I was saying that, first of all, I'm, I'm always fascinated when witnesses come to my door. I always do ask them, uh, because this is a movement uh, which is predicated on a particular kind of reading of the Bible uh, that focuses very much on the notion uh, of, of the end of one period of history, the, what they call a time of tribulation, followed by Armageddon, followed by a millennial rule of Christ. Uh, and I always want to know, like, do they feel like they're living in that time right now? And Mark kind of asked you a similar question. Say, say when you were a Jehovah's Witness, that's like, that, does, that feeling doesn't go away. Oh, it does not. No, um, it, it is, I think I used the word omnipresent, was it's that feeling that you know we are right on the edge of of Armageddon. Right? We're we're right there. Um, it's just you know one more thing in the world that is going to happen, and and it you know the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket, um, as the expression goes. But but yeah, very much a sense of of sitting and waiting for Armageddon to come, um, and uh, and it just being a, a ever present uh, feeling. All right, we're going to uh, have to, uh, really, we need like a second hour for this, uh, for all the stuff we want to talk about. But we're going to um, speed through a few things that probably deserve a lot more time. Uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Arye Shander, uh, Chief of Anesthesiology and Specialist in Bloodless Surgical Procedures at Englewood Hospital uh, in New Jersey. Uh, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. And, and we've alluded to this already, but obviously because of the Jehovah's Witnesses' beliefs about transfusion, at a certain point it made sense to figure out whether there was some way to perform a lot of 
standard is probably the wrong word, but a lot of um, procedures, uh, medical procedures that a Jehovah's Witness might need without transfusing them. And and so, you know, obviously, uh, this is a pretty complicated question, but maybe you could sort of give us a sense of what, in fact, medicine did figure out about this. So what was happening is that uh, initially there was just individual physicians who were willing to take care of patients without uh, resorting to blood transfusion in other manners, uh, treating anemia differently and coagulation uh, issues uh, differently than with uh, blood or blood products. Um, it was only until the late 80s, early 90s when hospitals started to do that, looking at systems. And this is what we did at Englewood Hospital Medical Center is we put everything together in terms of how we can prepare a patient going for surgery and then manage them without uh, using any blood. And what we found was that not only we were able to do complex surgery uh, with uh, Jehovah's Witness patients, but that their outcomes were as good and in many uh, instances better both in terms of cost as well as of length of stay and complication as compared to those patients who were treated with transfusion. So it, you know, it's, it's a uh, putting together, I guess, systems that enable you to uh, both prepare the patient as well as reduce the amount of blood loss uh, and also manage the patient postoperatively without transfusion. And it can be done. And that's pretty significant because, I mean, donor blood comes with, I mean, obviously during the uh, the peak of the AIDS crisis, donor blood was uh, full of risks and concerns. But donor blood, I would imagine on any given day, comes with a certain amount of risks in terms of immune reactions, infections, and stuff like that. So if you can do it without donor blood, in some ways, I suppose that might be preferable. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the uh, transfusion specialists say that the best transfusion or the safest transfusion is one you don't give. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, we have in hospitals, because blood became so uh, common, and uh, we always thought until the AIDS and hepatitis C epidemics that it was just uh, all benefit, no risk, although we never defined the benefit well, uh, we now recognize that there are other ways of treating conditions that in, in prior years we were treating with transfusion. And transfusion became a default treatment for hospitalized patients. And again, as uh, thanks to the Jehovah's Witness community in many ways, they were not only instrumental but very helpful in terms of advancing the notion that there are other alternatives to uh, these medical conditions that in the past required transfusion and now we could do with other uh, pharmaceuticals and other means. Um, for, by the way, for people who want to know a lot more about this, there's a pretty terrific three-part uh, series in the New Yorker that you can you can get online that uh, talk talk that talks about this. But but just very quickly, I mean, obviously, we don't want you to go through the whole history or the whole technique of this. But this involves things that are done during surgery, but also ways in which the patient is handled and dealt with before surgery, even right down to like preoperative blood draws, like how much blood you take. Correct. And uh, we noticed that a lot of times uh, we draw blood from patients who are hospitalized unnecessarily. And uh, there's actually data showing that in Europe, for example, they did a study and they showed that in one year uh, they collect from blood tests over 25 million liters of blood annually from patients. Uh, that's wasted blood. That blood can actually do a lot better in remaining in your veins and arteries. So looking at selecting what tests actually need 
uh, needed to be done and that we will change our management once we get the results. All that has woken us to really rethink how we uh, can effectively administer health care. So at the end of the day, this term bloodless medicine and surgery, all it is is just very good uh, care. So um, uh, I wish we had a lot more time for this. But, I mean, I guess one question I would have is, has it changed nationwide? In other words, I would imagine that if I were not a Jehovah's Witnesses, Witness, but I were at Englewood Hospital in New Jersey, maybe I'd run into some of this kind of thinking. But medicine overall is usually kind of slow to change. And even though the AMA is at one point listed transfusion as one of the most overused practices in medicine, I'm just assuming, you know, in the average hospital in the United States, nobody's going to say to me, oh, by the way, we have this whole other way that we could do it where, you know, we, we don't transfuse and we conserve your blood before hand and blah, blah, blah. So we are definitely seeing growth in this area. So there are two elements. One of them is actual bloodless medicine and surgery where patients for whom blood is not an option are treated in, a, uh, in an organized fashion. We're seeing more of that. Uh, Duke, for example, has adopted it. I know that other, uh, even the Mayo has gotten interest. So these are just large names, but I know that many small hospitals and are now turning to service their community, including the Jehovah's Witnesses within that community. On the other side of the coin is we have seen a dramatic reduction in blood use in the United States to the point where blood centers are concerned in terms of the volume, but understand that it's the right thing to do because blood has been overused. So right now we're looking at somewhere between 25 and up to about 30% reduction over the last few years of blood use because, again, most of it was unnecessary and it was used as default. And as we gotten educated, caring for patients for whom blood is not an option, that information has been disseminated to the rest of the medical community. And I think we are seeing change despite the fact that it's slow. Dr. Arya Shander, uh, I'm sorry uh, very much for uh, speed dating you, uh, but we have so much ground to cover. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, very quickly, we're going to switch gears here. Uh, Mark Silk, uh, we don't have time to run everybody through. I, I don't know how many cases have been brought. The uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have won 48 Supreme Court cases, which is I, I, probably unequaled by, by any other group of any kind. But basically, the history of legal precedent affecting religious liberty in the United States uh, overlaps very, very closely with the history of Jehovah's Witnesses in court. Uh, totally. I, I'll only talk about uh, 47 of them, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we ought to talk about just a few, including one they lost. Um, uh, the first one took place in Connecticut. It's called Cantwell versus Connecticut, and it does involve uh, this uh, this kind of uh, tough proselytizing um, with a with a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, really angering a bunch of Catholics in a neighborhood in, in New Haven, and they're uh, arrested and charged with violating an ordinance having to do with disturbing the peace, and they take the case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, for the first time in 1940, decides that uh, actually the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, um, that is, you know, the basic right to, to liberty in the in the Bill of Rights, uh, to religious r religious free exercise applies to the states, uh, and that and that the that the witnesses had a right uh, to really uh, annoy uh, their uh, Catholic neighbors in in New Haven. A few months after that, um, there's uh, uh, the first of the Pledge of Allegiance cases, uh, and this is the sort of other side of of of, of witnesses' sort of view of of the state. 
uh, where um, uh, uh, this is the Gobitis case, uh, and where where the case was brought to to allow Jehovah's Witnesses' children not to have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And this was prior uh, to 1954 when, when God was inserted into the Pledge of Allegiance. So it was simply a patriotic statement, but, but the Witnesses didn't like it. And in a decision which was very vigorously criticized at the time, uh, written by Justice Frankfurter, uh, the court said, no, they had to say the Pledge of Allegiance Two years, three years later, in 1943, with a, a different array of judges, and but still Frankfurter, uh, the court re- reverses itself, said Gobitis was wrongly decided, and in 1943, in a, in a case called Barnett versus uh, West Virginia, says uh, in, in some stirring, stirring language uh, by uh, Justice Jackson uh, that, and in the midst of World War II, uh, that no, um, what we're fighting for, what we stand for here in America is the right of people not to be forced uh, to say patriotic things that they don't want to say. Uh, and, and those decisions, the, the proselytizing one and the, um, and, and, and the Pledge of Allegiance one, really set the standard for the rights revolution uh, in in religious liberty in America, in recent years, uh, it's been other people who've been involved uh, in bringing these cases, such as the Little Sisters of the Poor. But um, but the Jehovah's Witnesses are absolutely critical in bringing these basic cases forward. All right, we're going to have to take a quick break. I can't believe what time it is. Uh, when we come back, I'll talk to John a little bit more about his experiences. Stay with us. Our conversation about Jehovah's Witnesses will continue. Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Olivia Piper and Adriana Smith. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Serena Williams. For all kinds of news about our show, discover our brand new Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On tomorrow's show, the song of the summer. And now back to Colin. I also want to thank uh, uh, Leah Myers. Uh, she was out on the streets uh, asking those questions about Jehovah's Witnesses, collecting that tape, and Olivia Piper assembled and edited that. And special thanks to Josh Nilea, who really uh, worked very, very hard to try to get uh, somebody from Jehovah's Witnesses on this show. Uh, but I think we've had a pretty interesting show anyway. And I want to thank uh, Jonathan DeHoyos for agreeing to come in. John's a landscape designer, a Connecticut resident, and former member of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mark Silk is a director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Pub- Public Life at Trinity College in Hartford. So, John, um, without wanting to pry into your life uh, over much, why why aren't you uh, a Jehovah's Witness now? Simply put, I had uh, uh, theological differences. (laughs) Um, You know, there are certain things that I uh, I, I was taught, and over the years, I simply do not agree with anymore. Um, But Certainly, the thing about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses is that it, it is is nothing that you can be nominal in. You can't mm-hmm. be a nominal witness. Um, you are either in or you are out, and um, you can't really disagree with church teachings. Um, of course, they wouldn't say church, but they'd say the, with the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I, I had a choice. Um, and because of the fact, especially because of the fact that not only are you just you're associating and you're and you're believing in something, but you also have to preach it. Mm-hmm. And so, I was left with the choice of like, all right, do I continue preaching something that 
I don't necessarily agree with, mm-hmm. which is all kinds of hypocritical in in my viewpoint. And so I had to make a choice. And um, and I, I I eventually it was a long process. And it was a very painful process. Um, but I I did choose to walk away. And and like I said at the beginning of the show, I I don't hold ill will. I don't. Um, I, I had the opportunity to really join a, a very vocal uh, community of ex-witnesses who just, are, you know, are chomp at the bit at, at, <laughs> at, at getting an opportunity to slam the witnesses for whatever ill that they uh, perceived to have, have been given. But, um, but I just I, I didn't want to do that. Um, and yeah, that's it. <laughs> so um, there's. Two terms that maybe we want to introduce here. Uh, one of them is disfellowship, which you right. did not experience, and disassociation, which you did. So disfellowship is not a situation where you decide you're going to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. It's when you do something that is irreconcilable. Right. Uh, it is. It is a form of punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, uh, you know, disfellowshipping is is an individual case. Um, you know, everybody's a little different. Um, sometimes people are disfellowshipped and and they are back in the congregation, back in the folds within six months. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the, the quickest uh, turnaround. But some are out for many, many years. Um, it really depends on, on the individual and, you know, the body of elders that um, that uh, works with that indiv- individual to, you know, either come back or stay out. So um, in my case, I was I, – I, I, and I, I basically – because I chose and because I walked away – um, there was no judicial action taken um, because technically I wasn't a threat to the congregation. Now, the fact that I'm on the show today may, may change that. Uh, well, but you haven't done anything about it. Well, who, who am I to say? But. Right. But, um, could, could you still be disfellowship? In absentia? Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, so basically it's it, – it, it, whether a person is disfellowshipped or not is dependent on whether they are a threat to the congregation. And, and one of the things I do not want to do is tear down another person's faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's why I say, that's why I keep it pretty general in saying I had some theological differences, and 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 I want to leave it at that. Um, you know, Mark, one of the there are, we we could div- in the taxonomy of religion we could sort of div- divide them up two different ways. There are religions that you can leave and seek an ecumenical experience someplace else uh, with a minimal amount of stress and strain, uh, and then there are religions where, in fact, once you're out of the religion, you are completely out of communion with everything that's right. And that's the Jehovah's Witnesses are as much as anybody probably could be the latter. I mean, once you're gone, you're gone. Yeah, I, th- I think that's so. I think the parallels with uh, and comparisons with with um, Mormonism are interesting in that yeah. in that regard. Uh, you 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 uh, do uh, if you do something to you know t- to really anger the Mormon authorities, the LDS Church uh, will will kick you out and uh, take away your temple recommend and 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 do the things that they do. Um, there, you know. I think many traditions have had the capacity to excommunicate in one, in one way or another. Certainly, uh, Catholics can do that. Uh, Jews used to to do that. Spinoza was uh, kicked out of his congregation in Amsterdam. Um, we don't know exactly why that was, but uh, but I think you know most mainline Protestant uh, people are happy. You know, groups these days are happy to have you in. We'll never kick you out. Oh yeah, and very hard yeah. to get kicked out of. But so this, uh, you know, uh, this must be. We're almost out of time here, John. But 
but you said painful, and this is right. the people that are nearest and dearest to you all growing up, including right. I would assume your immediate family. They're in a position where it's going to be very difficult for them to have any kind of real communion with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, when you're a witness, um, your entire life is 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 the organization and the friends within the congregation, and um, so you when when I left, um, I had no social network. None whatsoever. I, I, my entire, all my friends, all my uh, people that I, I cared for, uh, were witnesses. Um, so it, it was a very lonely experience to to walk away from that. Um, you know, my my marriage to my first wife uh, dissolved. Um, you know, because of, she was within the within the religion. So um, it was an extremely difficult time. Um, but at the same time, you know, you you kind of just build it from scratch and and start over, and uh, you get through it. Um, I wish I had time to ask more questions. I really do wish I had another hour. There's a ton of stuff to go uh, into. I will say this: the although the Jehovah's Witnesses were not possible to get on the show, they actually have a really good website, and the website will walk you through a lot of fairly complicated questions. So I know you guys were tweeting about the divorce and LGBT stuff, and and we didn't have time to get into a, a lot of that kind of stuff. But there are a lot of I think pretty good answers, especially doctrinally or theologically, some pretty good answers on the Jehovah's Witnesses website. So if you want to know more about specifically what they believe. I think it's a pretty good place to go. The Wikipedia article, uh, by contrast, is not good. Uh, <laughs> I think we think it's being whoever's working on the Wikipedia article is probably not Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, and it's uh, got some stuff that's way out of date. But uh, obviously, indulge your further curiosity. I'm sorry for anything that we didn't have uh, time to get to today. I do want to thank thank uh, Jonathan DeHoyas. Uh, I know maybe not the easiest thing in the world to do to come on a show like this, uh, and uh, Mark Silk, who's director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life. Professor of Religion at Trinity College in Hartford. Josh and Leah, thanks so much for working on this show. Uh, it was a tough lift, but I think it was, uh, it was worth it. All right, we'll be back tomorrow with our Song of the Summer show, which makes everybody mad at us, at us who doesn't get mad at us from the show. Yeah.